0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. A crushed rose, an unwrapped, dirt-encrusted lollipop, something that has lost its value, goods that have been damaged beyond repair. We've all heard these sorts of descriptions applied to people, especially women, who engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. The teachings on purity that lead to these kinds of illustrations are frequently seen as an immutable part of evangelical Christianity. But can the Bible and Christianity offer a different view of sexual ethics, one in which no one is encouraged to see themselves or others as damaged goods? In her debut book, Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity, Diana Anderson argues for this alternative Christian sexual ethics. We're excited to have her on the show today. Before we get started, listeners, I should let you know that we might be discussing topics related to rape, victim blaming, and other forms of abuse in this episode. I'm Marie Haas, one of the regular panelists at the Christian Feminist Podcast, and I'm particularly excited today because I know Diana personally from a semester we spent together in Oxford on a study abroad program um, eight years ago now in our undergraduate studies. And I've been reading Diana's blog, Faith and Feminism, for a long time, really appreciating it. You can find her blog at dianaeanderson.net. So, welcome, Diane, and would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work?
1: Hi, Marie. Um, I am a writer from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I've lived all over. As you mentioned, I've lived in England and Texas and Japan and Chicago, um, but I finally landed in Sioux Falls. And I uh, grew up in the church. I grew up uh, Baptist and went to two Baptist universities uh, one for undergrad, one for grad. And now I live my life as a full-time writer working on the uh, space where feminism and theology intersect.
0: Thanks. So that's, that's a really fruitful and exciting space. Of course, uh, we at the Christian feminist podcast, um, part of the Christian humanist network are very interested in that space. Um, And one of the things, uh, one of the ways in which you relate uh, feminism and Christianity is through your critique of the way that evangelical purity culture contributes to rape culture, which uh, you talk about at many points in your in your book. And I was wondering, um, how did you first come to the realization of that of that relationship, which isn't one that's immediately uh, apparent to everyone?
1: Um, when I was in undergraduate, I had a theater professor who was uh, very feminist and stuff, and uh, she was also very uh kind and and I was one of her favorite students. And at one point I was talking to her about modesty and she looked at me and went, wait, why is this all the women's responsibility? It seems kind of weird um, that like men would have no responsibility in this. And I think that was the first inkling that I had that there was something off with purity culture. And then um, when I started studying it uh, a few years later, I realized that um, there's this idea that everything women do or everything that happens to women is our own fault, um, impurity culture. And that includes any assaults or, uh, rapes or anything of that kind. So it, um, in that way, the rhetoric contributes to, uh, what feminists call this rape culture, this era, uh, this culture around victim blaming and, um, and lessening the, um, the severity of, of rape through how we talk about it.
0: Yeah. Very, mm-hmm. very, very related to that, um, double standard that I see mm-hmm. being criticized, uh, in, in feminism. Um, and more largely, how did you get into feminism or Christian feminism, um, in the first place that if, if it wasn't the point, the point that you started out from.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of the reasons why I got into feminism relate back to my education. I was, um, I guess you could say, I was corrupted by by liberal higher ed. But we started studying um, in liter- literary criticism in graduate school. We started studying feminist theory, and I had a roommate who identified as a feminist, and so I really started seeing it as not like this evil bogeyman that um, that I had been sort of taught that it was, and realized that. This was actually a um, useful structure for for understanding the world.
0: Yeah, so you you mentioned your professor and your roommate and these Mm -hmm. other figures who introduced you to feminism. Um, Who are some other writers or thinkers that influenced your thoughts, particularly on purity culture or on um, questioning how gender roles are approached in uh, evangelical theology?
1: Um, I read Jessica Valenti's The Purity Myth, which came out in 2008 and I read it, uh, in 2010 and, um, there wasn't, at the time I didn't agree with a whole lot of it and was, and it took a while for me to work through all the different arguments and stuff, but that was, I think, the beginning of my, um, exploration of purity culture because it's something that I was so invested in at the time and yet, um, also disillusioned with, um, that I, uh, that the purity myth filled in that space. And also, um, a few theologians that I read while we were at Oxford, uh, Janet Martin-Solskis, I read her for my philosophical theology tutorial. And, um, she's done a lot of, a lot of good stuff on language surrounding, uh, how we talk about God and everything. And that, uh, really started me thinking more deeply about how we talk about gender in Christianity.
0: Those sound like uh, some writers and works that I should definitely check out. I yeah. <laughs> haven't had, haven't read them yet, but sounds like I really should. Um, and okay, so in, in the way that you approached looking at purity culture in this book, one thing you did was conduct a lot of interviews um, with uh, women and men who have experience with purity culture and its effects. And I was wondering what, particular interview experience, uh, stood out to you the most or most affected your thinking?
1: Um, one that I included in the book was, uh, the lady I named Britta, um, who told the story of having, um, like having a tumultuous relationship with her, her ex-boyfriend and not actually having sex with him, but getting close enough that she became pregnant. And, um, having that result in a miscarriage and totally upending her, how she viewed purity and how she viewed, um, the abortion issue and various reproductive rights and stuff. That one was really, um, affecting for me.
0: And very, very powerful to read about in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Um, really points to some of the insidious effects of, of Mm -hmm. these teachings in purity culture. Um, And the way that education about purity is approached is another thing that you talk about a lot in the book. Uh, You talk about the dangers of abstinence-only education uh, in the way that it fails to prepare young adults for sexual encounters and for being in- informed and, and able to approach these encounters in a way that would, you know, result in safe sex or safer mm-hmm. sex, I should say. Um, but you also talk about the way that it's uh, psychologically damaging in other respects uh, to these young people, particularly through this, th- the way it promotes a negative view of the self um, mm-hmm. And some of that is through some of these illustrations that I mentioned, or is abstinence education uh, exercises. So, I wondered in the course of your research, what is the worst example of one of these sort of demeaning illustrations or exercises that you ran into that sort of demonstrates the, the, some of these negative aspects of uh, abstinence-only education?
1: Yeah, that those sort of illustrations wherein. Where um both women and men are turned into objects and used to like uh, talk about sex in that way. Those are very, very demeaning and stuff. And uh, when I was thinking about this, I came up with, with two, one that I've heard about and one that I experienced myself. Um, But there's one where um, everyone in the youth group is given Oreos and then they pass around uh, some water and they're instructed to all spit in the glass. And then they hold up the glass of this like dirty (laughs) Oreo fied water And said, would you drink this? This is what it's like when you have sex with a whole bunch of people. (laughs) And It's kind of like... Oh, no. It's it's both gross and very offensive because, you know, I'm not a glass of Oreo water. Like, that just... No, that's not how biology works. Yeah, you um, notice
0: how many, how many of these illustrations are food as well. Like yes. Objects, not only objects, but ones to be literally consumed.
1: <laughs> yes, and you notice that a lot in uh, when people talk about modesty. Like, you don't put a thing of chocolate cake on display and then tell people not to eat it. And it's like, well, I'm not chocolate cake. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> Um, and the second one that I experienced was at, uh, summer camp, we would have, um, you know, the, the, every week at, um, Bible camp, you'd have the, the sex talk and the abstinence talk in the, uh, some evening. Um, and one of the things that, uh, my youth group did was we would take two sheets of different colored paper and put a little bit of glue on them and stick them together and then pull them apart and look at like the little bits of paper that got stuck to each other, um. And stuff. And that would be, um, that was supposedly the demonstration of how, like, once you've bonded to somebody, you can't quite stick as well to somebody else and things like that. And it's it's another thing where it's like, well, bonding's not a finite resource, sort of thing. You don't, um, like, once you've bonded to somebody, you can't, you know, bond to anybody else. It's not, that's not how human relationships work. So.
0: Yeah, or it's not like you run out of the capacity
1: to love. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay, so you mentioned an interview that stood out to you and uh, a couple of these illustrations. Yeah. Um, was there anything uh, in the course of your research or interviews or the editing process that stood out to you in a different way in terms of uh, being particularly surprising or uh, make forcing you to uh, ad- adapt your ideas or your thinking
1: on these topics? Well, I went into this project, not knowing a whole lot or not understanding a lot about um, how race functions in the evangelical church in America. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's an aspect of sort of my white privilege in that, like, I assumed white church, it, universal experience for everybody. And there are aspects of like the white evangelical purity theology that are in, um, the black churches in America. But for the most part, there's a huge segregation there where in, um, where black women end up being very sexualized and very, um, seen as like automatically impure just because of their race and because of their, um, place in society, I guess you would say their, their social location. Um, and so that was sort of an eye-opening thing and one thing that really helped me with approaching that understanding was that my editor um is a wonderful um she she's 60 years old african american woman who was who was able to say um you know diana you need to talk about race here you need to you know make sure you expand this and and stuff um and so that was really helpful in writing the book um and it was really an eye-opening experience, too, to realize that, yeah, even, um, even as a feminist, I'm oppressed as a woman, but I don't experience the intersection of oppression as a uh, black woman would. And so I need to examine that sort of thing.
0: Now, yeah, the way you address intersectionality on your blog, I've been really appreciating, especially in the last uh, couple years, it seems like you've had an increased focus on this idea of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Um and that's carried over in your book. Uh, like you say, you talk about the way that ideas about race are interrelated to the functions of purity culture and purity culture rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about uh, ideas about body shape, disability, class, sexual orientation, mm-hmm. and gender identity as these go into um, purity culture and the way the purity culture rhetoric often erases these groups of people. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you you've started to touch on this, but even beyond just uh race, why do you think talking about these kinds of intersectional uh discourses is important in this sort of feminist project?
1: Um because it's important that we're able to talk to talk to and with women of all different kinds. And I think approaching it from a Christian perspective, it's really important as well, because everyone is created by God and loved by God. And so we need to make sure that we are inclusive of them in um, any sort of social justice project that we talk about. Because if we're seeking uh, justice for uh, other groups, we've got to make sure we're seeking justice for for the others. It's the whole a rising tide lifts all boats and we need to make sure that all boats are on uh, are are coming with us um in that and that's why i wanted to pay particular attention to um things like disability and race and sexual orientation and gender identity because it's very important that we um discuss how uh purity culture impacts all of them because purity culture tends to treat us as one size fits all sort of things where like everyone is cisgender and heterosexual and white And, um, the real world is so much different and so much more varied and so much more brilliant than, than that, you know, um, whitewashed vision that purity culture gives us. And so intersectionality is important to realizing the breadth and the depth of how God created all of us.
0: Uh, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And, i I like the way you point out that this intersectionality is is demanded by uh your vision both of feminism and of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's important to recognize these varieties of all women and it's demanded by uh re- and recognizing the variety of creation and uh fully the, recognizing the full humanity of uh, all of the people that God has placed in the world uh so moving on to some of the particulars of the book you include a chapter that provides an overview of sex and scripture that no doubt some will end up finding controversial. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people uh, might say that the Bible is entirely reflective of the patriarchal values of the cultures that it's written in. And so it would, you couldn't have a possible, positive sexual ethics emerging from it for that reason. But on on the other extreme, others might say that the Bible is really the only thing that you should be looking at in discussing sexual ethics and any other concerns like shifting cultural values or personal conscience would be secondary at best. Mm-hmm. Um, so we shouldn't just limit the Bible to the one chapter here. So what... What are you doing with the Bible in this book? What place do you think the Bible should have in our conversations about sexual ethics?
1: Being a Christian feminist, you end up sitting in this really weird uh, little space where you get the femin- the secular feminist world saying, well, you're religious. You obviously subscribe to the patriarchy in some form, so you're useless as a feminist. And then you get the uh, conservative Christians who say, well, you're a feminist, you're... Um, paying too much to the world, um, as it were. And so you can't quite be a Christian and, and it's this weird intersection. So I get, I'm, I've been getting a lot of that with, um, my use of scripture in the book. Cause once you get out of that scripture chapter, I use scripture somewhat throughout the book, but I rely more on, um, my theological knowledge and mm-hmm. sort of what I would call like Holy spirit knowledge of God. Um, which sounds like really charismatic but it's it's not um, and for me, that is in part so I can make the book accessible to people who have um been sort of lambasted with scripture throughout their lives and they don't yeah. want a sexual ethic that that is um you know well this is what the Bible says blah blah blah, that sort of thing um and so i I'm trying to be sensitive to that. Um, and I'm also very, uh, but I'm also very sensitive to the, the fact that, um, scripture has informed all of my thinking. I don't, you know, make it obvious all the time. And I don't, I feel like if I'm pointing to certain texts throughout the, throughout the book, I end up proof texting and I want to avoid that. So that's, um, so scripture is the undergirding for it, but it's not always visible. Um, and some and you know, I've discovered that I'm going to get flack either way for however mm-hmm. I include it. So, um, I'm just going to do what feels right to me <laughs> sort of thing. And for me, that comes out of the Bible being a guide and not a blueprint. So.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of us in, in Christian feminism have this, uh, similar feeling of needing to mm-hmm. live in this tension that you yes. identify. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that you one of the issues you raise in this particular chapter a chapter on sex and scripture um, is the distinction between natural sexual desire and lust and I thought that was a that was a really interesting section of the chapter because this distinction is often blurred or erased in purity culture and that uh, i think you point out has some negative effects so why do you why do you say or why do you think that it's important to allow for natural sexual desire without automatically connecting it to lust and its accompanying shame or feelings of being in sin <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that ties back into the history of the evangelical movement. In that, in America at least, we've become very um, gnostic in our way of looking at um, looking at the body and looking at um, spirit and soul and everything. We've we've forced in this arbitrary division between um, who we are as people and this sort of meat suit that we're ha- inhabiting and um, we've lost the grip on what it means to be incarnated um, here on earth, living in the bodies that we have. And when we despise the flesh, the way the evangelical church has taught us, there ends up being no concept of naturally occurring biological things, which are, you know, natural sexual desires and this evil lust that wants to corrupt us. Cause, um, the entire view of the body is that we want to corrupt that, that, it, that is that it's what carries the sin and that's, what's corrupting us. Um, and so it all goes back to this um, anti um, material Gnostic philosophy. And so I want to, I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that like our bodies are a huge um, source of information about our lives and they greatly inform our experiences And so we need to get into a position where we are paying attention to our body and not fearing it. And I think purity culture does a lot by blurring that line between natural sexual desire and lust. They um, force us into a position where we're fearing our body and we take heart in the idea that, you know, Mm -hmm. our body is not part of us and everything. And that, I think, leads to a distorted view of sex in general. And so so it's important to realize that, you know, uh, when you have that natural reaction to seeing somebody that you're attracted to or whatever, that's not necessarily lust. Lust has to be this different, more magnified sin. Everything, Because otherwise you're just fearing your body over and over and over again.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's... It seems related to this uh, this Gnostic view, like you say, or mm-hmm. maybe the, the overemphasis on a Cartesian duality that you get yes. in the uh, modern Western church um, yeah. that goes along with that sort of Gnostic impulse mm-hmm. to shame the body. So I really like uh, what you're doing with um, placing an emphasis on embodiment and mm-hmm. sort of reclaiming the body, which is a very feminist move there. Yeah. Uh, um, and... I think you can see a little bit of this this celebration of embodiment and of sexual desire in your discussion of Song of Songs, which is mm-hmm. just a quick part of the chapter on sex and scripture, yeah. but one that I appreciated. Uh, what was it that led you to include attention to Song of Songs in particular?
1: Well, when I was forming that chapter, I was thinking about like all the verses that are against sex and and um supposedly against premarital sex all those like um rules that are trotted out and stuff and then i realized like if we're going to talk about the negative aspects of sex in scripture we need to talk about the few positive examples that we have and song of songs is one of them um Mm. and it's it's the one that's like um Like, I don't know what your church was like growing up, but mine was like, you don't read that until like you're older (laughs) and stuff, um, everything. Um, and I realized when I was researching it, um, that this couple based on the context clues and everything, they're probably not married. She's still living in her own house and he's coming to the garden and, and, and stuff. And so all this discussion is happening and, you know, it's basically about premarital sex, so it's important that like our one major positive example is seen as you know is it's complicated for people um that you know this isn't solely about after marriage sex it's not about after the wedding, this is you yeah, know, or solely about Christ in the yeah, church, yeah. yes, exactly, yeah. which oh gosh, it gets really weird if that's about <laughs> Christ in <and> the church. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay. So looking at the book more largely or more in general, over the course of the book, you talk a lot about individuals owning themselves, which seems to be a major component of the view of sexual ethics Mm -hmm. that you're proposing. It is. Uh, You talk about people owning their bodies both before and after marriage, that that after marriage part is something that's uh, sort of erased in kind mm-hmm. of terrifying ways sometimes in purity culture reference, uh, r- r- rhetoric, or people owning their journeys through life and owning their decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I mean, on the one hand, it seems like it should be obvious for us to acknowledge a person's ownership of their own body and their own life, but it's often lost in this purity culture, or evangelical rhetoric, this idea of ownership of the self. And what are some of the reasons that you think that we get that loss in the church in this kind of rhetoric?
1: I think evangelicalism as a whole takes its cues from the idea that, you know, um, we belong to God, we belong to another country. Um, there's this idea, I'm not sure entirely where it came up from, but the idea that Christians don't, you know, that part of it's from scripture, but part of it is historical, um, experience in that Christians don't belong on this earth and stuff. And, um, everything there's, everything we have is just borrowed from God and, and stuff. And we're living on the, um, the sovereignty and the pleasure of, of God. And that, a lot of that comes out of, uh, Calvinist reformation theology and stuff too. Um, mm-hmm. and so we get this idea that because we belong to God, then we, then proclaiming that we own ourselves a sort of anti-God, we're holding something back, we're being selfish. And so, um, ownership of ourselves has, and bodily autonomy have become associated with selfishness, in the evangelical rhetoric. And that makes it very, very hard to talk about, um, things like, you know, rape as a violation of bodily autonomy mm. rather than, you know, rape as somebody stealing your purity, um, or which stealing
0: your wife's purity. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, and so, so, but, the thing is, if we don't talk about it as a violation of bodily autonomy, we lose a whole bunch of how we discuss um, why these things are bad and stuff like we need to change the rhetoric to talk about, um, you know, this is bad because it's violating one of God's creations. It's violating the personhood of somebody rather than violating their holiness or their purity, because mm-hmm. that takes us down a very bad path of, you know, rape being able to take away your purity and making you damaged goods and and stuff and that's that just reinforces rape culture.
0: Yeah. Uh, so ownership of yourself and of your desires and your choices is something that you talk about in connection with the choice of abstinence as well, which I thought was a, a good and interesting move that you make. You, you did this recently on your blog when you wrote mm-hmm. about uh, five reasons to wait until marriage and you discuss this in your book as well. Um, mm-hmm. Why is it that you're so careful in your book and on your blog to acknowledge abstinence as a
1: choice? It's one of those things where um, a lot of the blowback that um, someone like I get, it, 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 a lot of the blowback I get is is related to this idea that feminists just want us to be hedonists who go off and parade um, our sexuality around. And a lot of that rhetoric comes out of the um, secondary sexual revolution in the mid-20th century. Um, and so this idea that feminists just, you know, want to divorce their husbands and go be witchy lesbians or whatever it was Pat Robinson said. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's important to me that like to, to recognize that no, my message here is not go out and have sex. My message here is make careful decisions about the sex that you want to have or the sex you don't want to have. You know, if you want to wait, make sure you you're making that decision, not because, you know, the Bible says so, or my pastor said so make it because it's the right choice that is for you. Um, and so, and feminism, especially now is about honoring the different choices that women may make recognizing the institutional structures that drive some of those choices, but also honoring them as having the agency and the autonomy to make the choice that is right for their life. Because so much of, uh, history for women is having those choices stolen from us. So I want to be able to give people back the agency to say yes or to say no, if that's the right choice for them.
0: Yeah, because you wouldn't want to, in this effort to erase the shame for women when Mm -hmm. it comes to sexual choices, you don't want to circle back around and be like, no, shame on you for not having
1: sex. uh... Yeah, because that just... (laughs) That just undermines the entire project.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> um, so that's that's one thing I appreciated. Then it's your uh, attention to acknowledging abstinence as a choice. Yes. Um, so in your discussion of the effects of purity culture, we talked about uh, how it c- how abstinence-only education in combination with purity culture can leave young adults unprepared for sexual encounters, or can lead to some. Uh, sorts of uh, negative views of the Mm -hmm. self it can also um sort of impede your your own kinds of voyages of self-exploration and self-discovery if you're trying to shut down every kind of sexual thought and thinking uh a a sexual thought is lust is a sin you know Mm -hmm. um so you talk a little bit about how this worked in your own life in the book um particularly in uh your realization that you're interested in genderqueer people and women as well as in men so would you talk about how how purity culture goes went into
1: that uh voyage of self-exploration yeah in my own personal life like had i known asexuality was a category i probably would have called myself that up until i was like 22 23 Um, and stuff, because like, I had gotten so good at repressing all of those natural desires, repressing any of that, that like, I barely even registered attraction toward men and stuff. And then when I started dating, um, and stuff, I realized, oh, I'm allowed to like men. This is okay. And started growing more in my feminist, um, thought of owning my, my story and owning, um, my body and, and all that. And when I started, um, allowing myself to experience those natural desires I realized that oh there's a whole bevy of them happening here that I didn't you know I hadn't even allowed myself to confront before so um I ended up being kind of a late bloomer when it comes into um understanding my own bisexuality and stuff like I've talked to other bisexuals who like knew at 14 that that's what they were and everything and I'm like I don't think I would have even like given it a thought at 14 because it was such a um sexuality was something you totally didn't address in, in church. You were assumed to be hetero and that was it. Um, and if you were hetero, you had to suppress any of those desires until you were married. Um, so it ended up being something where you don't explore those parts of yourself or you don't, um, develop any sort of understanding of yourself until, well into your adulthood when you're actually allowing yourself to experience your own sexuality
0: yeah Yeah, i think i had a slightly similar experience although it was more uh the erasure of the idea that i could be bisexual through um thinking that that's just sort of the baseline that's expected by the church Mm -hmm. and that if, if homosexuality as they'd say is a choice, then everybody should be able to, you know, be able to make Mm -hmm. that choice. Therefore, everybody's bisexual. Therefore, (laughs) nobody's bisexual. Therefore, I don't need to identify as bisexual. So I was uh, a late bloomer like you uh, Mm -hmm. in that recognition uh, for like slightly related but different reasons, I guess, when it came to that kind of erasure of sexual minorities in the church. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I think it's that sort of troubling way in which Sexual minorities and uh, other minority groups are erased in the church or erased through purity culture rhetoric that um, means that if we're going to if we're going to change that we need to be more proactive in making the church a, a safe space for discussion about these kinds of topics of sexuality and that's something yeah. that you talk about in the book, this need for safe spaces, both in the church and in personal relationships. Um, One thing I was wondering is that, do you think it's possible to create this kind of safe space, uh, whether just in one-on-one relationships or in the larger church setting if you have people that are, that are still disagreeing with each other and working through new ideas, so what, do, what to you, what does talking about sexual ethics in a safe space look like?
1: I actually um, got the chance to experience something that felt like a really safe space um, last month when I went to the Gay Christian Network Conference out in Portland it's, um, the largest gathering of, um, LGBT Christians and their straight allies. Um, there were a lot of parents at the conference and, and stuff too. Um, and it was about 1500 people, all of whom are, um, all of whom are affirming of, of gay identity. Some who feel that, um, gay people are called to be celibate or queer people are called to be, to be celibate in that. And the vast majority of people are, Um, wanting to affirm uh, queer relationships and same-sex relationships and stuff. And it was this uh, kind of amazing space where you could come together and talk about all these differing issues and stuff and still know at the end of the day that, um, you know, this wasn't going to be, you weren't going to be made to feel unsafe. You weren't going to um, get shamed for your views. And a lot of that came from, establishing very intentionally at the conference that this is a safe space. This is, this is a place where we do not, um, shame people for their views. People have different views and we, we accept that and we don't try to force them to change. If they're not ready to change, we don't push them on it. Um, and we simply sit down and have discussions. We, um, it works mainly as an, as a sort of informative exchange of ideas rather than a, I'm going to try to argue you into this. Um, And I think that's an attitude that could benefit the church as a whole in that um, we need to sort of let go of, um... there's a phrase that um, I think was Allen Ginsberg used, uh, it was kill your darlings. And he used it in terms of writing, you got to be willing to sacrifice the stuff that you love um, in order to be, in order to improve yourself. And I think, um, the church could learn from that and that we have to sacrifice the idea of being absolutely right in order to be gracious.
0: Yeah, that's, I had a similar experience with the Gay Christian Network Conference. I didn't get to go this year, but I went last year in Chicago. Mm -hmm. That was, um, uh, yeah it was sort of eye-opening to be in this kind of space where there are people who have disagree have disagreement mm-hmm. on what you should do in terms of sexual ethics but yeah it's this absence of shame that you mentioned it's
1: mm-hmm.
0: really important in creating that safe space yeah uh, and I saw that um, in this year's gay Christian Network you and Eliel Cruz I think mm-hmm. uh, presented a workshop on uh, bisexual visibility, which yes. I think that sort of thing is important in, in creating safe spaces in the mm-hmm. church too, and, and recognizing the presence of minorities, whether mm-hmm. it's sexual minorities and divisions within sexual minorities or other uh, other minorities, um, that goes into just creating the foundation for a safe space mm-hmm. to be possible. Yeah. Um, so I appreciated, I appreciated that um, you and Eliel and Cruz were doing that at uh, the conference. So, let's uh, looking back at some of the specifics of the book, let's look at uh, two points from your final chapter. One that I wanted to talk a little bit about is the emphasis you place on pleasure, which you discuss both in the section on mutual pleasure and mutual consent in this chapter, and that you talk about at other points in the book as well. Um, so consent really ought to go without saying, although I think you Mm -hmm. show in the book that it really frequently doesn't go without saying in purity culture, which is a huge problem of course, but, um, this focus on pleasure as foundational is a little, a little less obvious. Um, so how, why, why are you focusing on pleasure here and how is what you're saying, uh, about pleasure, about, uh, sexual pleasure different from the way that it's discussed in purity culture rhetoric?
1: Um, in purity culture rhetoric, sexual pleasure is talked about as this sort of, um, thing that you, um, expect from marriage and stuff. And it's not, um, if, if it's outside of marriage, if you're experiencing sexual pleasure, that's sinful and, and all that, but within marriage, any and all sexual pleasure, um, is, is good. And it's talked as this sort of abstract, um, sort of thing. So one thing I wanted to do in the book was to make it more concrete and to make it about, you know, you should be um, when you're having a sexual experience, it should be pleasurable, pleasurable for everyone involved, um, everything. And that goes along with the whole getting in tune with what your body is telling you and allowing yourself to feel those different things. Um, And so in that way, pleasure is very much foundational to consent because it helps you understand, you know, if you're actually okay with something, um, and, uh, it, it helps you to, um, be more in tune with who you are as a sexual human being. And a lot of women in purity culture don't get told that they're allowed to like sex. Like I had a married friend, um, in my mid twenties who said, um, after she got married, she was surprised by how much she liked sex. Cause she thought, you know, I'm a woman, I'm not supposed to like this thing. Um, And I think it's very important to affirm for women in particular that, you know, this is a thing you're allowed to like and it doesn't make you a terrible person. Um, And so, uh, and it's all about being able to understand and be in tune with who you are as a sexual human being. If you, if you are sexual.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Though at the same time, I think it, we would still not want to circle back and start to say, well, oh, be ashamed of yourself if you tried something out and we're like, meh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Exactly, so yeah. It's more more about uh, the uh, exploration and getting to know yourself, I think yes. you're saying, rather than – like it's not as foundational as consent in terms of you're yeah. morally wrong if you – experience sex and don't have a great time in that moment (laughs) yeah and
1: And what i meant by that was really that like looking for pleasure and knowing um yourself help you to understand when you're in a situation where consent might be um coerced or something because usually then you're able to listen to your body and realize that oh i'm not having fun anymore maybe it's time to to, to end things or uh,
0: yeah, definitely. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I like what you point out about, uh, women often being sort of uninformed mm-hmm. about being able to experience pleasure or like that should be a thing that they could be seeking. Yeah. That sort of goes along with the other point I wanted to bring up from, uh, the final chapter was this, uh, section on your feelings are valid. So it's kind of not only this ownership of pleasure and seeking for pleasure and sex, but ownership of your own feelings, because that's uh, this message that your feelings are valid is one that's also often denied, especially for women. Um, So you talk about the validity of anger and um, even about how anger at injustice might on some level function as the voice of the Holy Spirit. Um, so going off of that, what role do you think that emotion should play in conversations on sexual ethics uh, or conversations on theology and social justice in
1: general? I think in a lot of evangelical culture, we're really taught not to trust our feelings and to trust our gut instincts. We're told that, um, or at least I was told that feelings lie um, and faith isn't about a feeling. It's about um, you know, a commitment. And uh, and to some extent that's true, but it very often gets taken as you shouldn't trust any sort of human emotions or human reaction at all. And that um, becomes very problematic because it forces us to deny um, that, you know, the Holy Spirit could be talking to us in those moments of anger and saying, you know what, you're angry about this. That's because God is angry too. Um, and I think that learning how to be in tune with our own gut reactions and our own instincts and recognizing when they're um, righteous and when they're they're not is a very important part of discernment for Christians. It's very important to learn how to discern um, our own feelings uh, in order to improve our relationships with others and to understand um, issues related to justice. Um, and everything. And for me, sexual ethics is a justice issue in terms of how having a robust understanding of sexual ethics, I believe, will help decrease uh, sexual violence and decrease shame around sex and um, around reproductive decisions and reproductive choices. And, and to me, that's very important. And it's a very important part of um, how we enact justice as a church.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sort of along with, um, this idea that your feelings are valid is, um, the idea that you can, you can then express those feelings. It's valid to express those feelings and to be heard expressing those feelings. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something you'll probably run into in some of your, your, the feedback that you'll get mm-hmm. for your, your book um some people are probably going to talk about your tone um you've said on your blog that your editor encourages you to write well angry and uh, you can see this passion in in different sections of the book so you're putting into practice this argument that if you, your feelings are valid um and uh, why Why would you think that somebody who's dismissing your arguments for that appearance of anger or of passion um, would be making a mistake? And also, where would they be coming from with that dismissal?
1: I think for a lot of people, they don't want to think of their dismissal of people based on tone is part of, you know, the um, institutionalized um, oppressive structures of society, but unfortunately we often see the arguments following that direction um there was a big argument there was a big discussion online this last week about quote unquote public radio voice and how um vocal identifiers for um people like um people sounding black on public radio and stuff doesn't particularly happen um and so hmm. there's this idea of like white calm um and uh you know upper middle class sort of is the neutral um and anything that deviates from that is is a problem and so it all follows along these lines of what's considered neutral in society is the uh quote unquote white male objectivity um sort of thing and so by um challenging that with our tone we end up um Asserting our right to take up space at the table in that in that way. And I think a lot of people who dismiss based on tone, aren't even consciously enacting those sort of oppressive structures, but are just Mm -hmm. sort of that's what they've been taught. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to challenge it.
0: Yeah, this white calm is the neutral or the mm-hmm. default, or it's also male calm. Be, male yes. being seen as the uh, the neutral and the default, and the reasonable, and therefore the only kind of permissible uh, mm-hmm. percep- perception of tone. Um, and that's that's probably something I'm guessing that you've experienced online as well. Is mm-hmm. people dismissing you for your tone not being this sort of male default. Um, or for your emotion or just even without considerations of tone just for your gender um, being a woman online so what has been an experience that stood out to you in terms of being a woman in discourse and the public sphere online
1: oh man there are so many um <laughs> it happens like at least once a week we're like i'll say something And then a male friend of mine will say almost the exact thing and he will get a better response than I did. (laughs) Um, And it's it's kind of hilarious. Um, But there have been points where, like, um, I have literally been told that as a woman, the work I do isn't theology because women only write fluffy stuff um, and men are more objective, (laughs) um, which is was kind of hilarious to me. Cause I've been doing, I mean, I have a degree in theology. I've been doing theology work for years. So it was like, Oh, that's a surprise. I didn't know what I was writing about. The Trinity was fluffy. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, that happens online a lot. And, um, I've noticed it happened along, uh, race lines too. Like my friend, um, Eliel, who you, um, mentioned earlier, he, um, had an experience this week where he was, um, in a conversation with two white men and one of the white guys would only respond to the other white guy. He wouldn't respond to Elio who was Puerto Rican. Um, So it was like, really? Wow. Oh, Oh.
0: yeah. That's uh, hard to think about these uh, gendered and racial divisions Mm -hmm. that are still being enacted and, Enforced and policed online and in public spaces, spaces, which is something we all need to be working against as Christian feminists, um, and be aware of how that's working in our own discourse. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, okay. So, in terms, uh, I think we're we're running out of time here. So, I think we'll have the last question uh, relate to what you're talking about theology. You mentioned you've been writing okay. on theology. Um, for a number of years and have a degree in theology. And uh, this was something that sort of struck me as I was reading the epilogue to your book, which I thought was, uh, I, I like the way it was structured. You'd say at one point, no, this is not an altar call, but it's sort of structured as this mock mm-hmm. altar call, and you end with the sentence... I hope that you find yourself here a worthy person just as you are, sort of parodying with the just as you are, the the just as I am hymn that famously accompanied Billy Graham's altar calls and that gave him the title to his autobiography. But here, the call that you're talking about isn't... Uh, a call to repentance for this shameful, sinful existence or relief really for original sin, ultimately. Um, but you're calling throughout the book uh, for this freedom from shame. And that that emphasis on the freedom from shame, um, this contrast in this sort of mock altar call, hints for me, I think, at, at some sorts of foundational theological differences between you and very likely many evangelical churches. Um, So what theological framework would you say that you're currently working from or writing from or are most influenced by, particularly when you're looking at these ideas of sin and of social justice?
1: Um, Definitely liberation theology. I've been reading a lot of, um, well, I read Gustavo Gutierrez when I was in uh, graduate school, and that was really sort of the spark that started me down Um, this road, but I've been reading a lot of James Cone and a lot of Elizabeth Johnson and a lot of those liberation theologians. And the thing that I like about them is that they center their theological thought in their current experience as marginalized people. And they discuss um, God as having a preferential option for the oppressed. He is, uh, God is somebody who goes after and um, bonds with the oppressed against their oppressors. And that's something that I found very useful for my understanding of, um, how God functions and speaks to us currently, um, as people who are, um, undergoing what Paul called the birthing pains of the, the created world, um, and stuff. And so that sort of liberationist perspective is very, um, important to me. And I, and that's a huge um, departure from mainline evangelical theology, because a lot of white evangelical theology rejects liberation theology as, you know, too grounded in the um, human experience.
0: So that, that those sound like some writers that I should check out as well, these uh, writers in liberation theology. You can definitely see some connections there between the concerns of liberation theology and uh, the concerns of Christian feminism, um, and I I really appreciate what the, that sort of influence of liberation theology in your work. It's made me think I should look into that myself some more. So thanks so much for talking with us today, Diana. It's been really great, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern, Kristen Filipic is our press liaison, and this has been Marie Hawes for Christian Humanist Profiles.